Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Graham Keane, who is an entrepreneur and CFO turned psychologist. Graham, would you mind giving us a quick 60 to 90 second introduction to you, you and how you got to where you are? Hi, Marcus. Thanks very much indeed. It's lovely to be here. So my background initially was as an accountant with Ernst & Young, and then I went on to three CFO roles in national and international businesses. And after that, I spent some time in corporate finance doing mergers and acquisitions. Following that, I had a, a major Damascene experience and actually got into business psychology. I'm actually a positive psychologist and have been running my company, Neobitis International, for 20 years now. And what we do is we work with entrepreneurial organizations, PE-backed companies, small parts of major globals to help them realize the full potential of their people and of the organization by educating them in the fact that trying to decide whether you should run an organization to maximize the well-being of the people or whether you should run an organization to maximize the financial interests of the people that own and run it is a false dichotomy because the former is the route to the latter. I couldn't agree more. So let's start with what is positive psychology? Positive psychology started in 1995 in Martin Seligman's garden. Seligman at that time was arguably the most eminent psychologist in the world. He's an Ivy League professor. Uh, he was one of the world authorities on depression. He'd just been voted one of the six most important psychologists of all time. And his five-year-old daughter called him out for being a grouch which caught him short. <laughs> and uh, he thought about it and thought, you know, she's absolutely right. I'm a grumpy pessimist. And so are all my friends in psychology. What the hell has gone wrong since William James and other in the, others in the late 19th century founded this stuff? Why, is, why, is it, why have we changed from being interested in helping people achieve their potential to be now all we're bothered about is, is sick people? And he decided at that point that he was going to become as big an authority on happiness as he presently was on depression. <laughs> and he, as he turned to look at the canon of work that had already been done, he didn't like it very much. And so he started the psychology of happiness. And everything that any of us have ever heard in the press in the last 25 years about happiness, about well-being, about uh, mindfulness, all of that stuff flowed from Nikki calling her dad a grouch in his, uh, his garden in 95. So obviously, you know, somebody who's got such a, a big footprint in the academic profession uh, garnered a whole lot of support for what he was trying to do. And by the early 2000s, there was enough of a, a new body of knowledge being created for him to actually start proselytizing this. And he started by educating 1,000 psychologists worldwide. I was one of the first, I was, I was in that, uh, we were called the Vanguard. I was one of the first five positive psychologists in the UK. And it has turned into a massive movement. Now, every university that has anything to do with psychology has an applied positive psychology department within it and courses within it. But it's also a movement. As well as a science, it's a movement. And uh, it has a stated, a stated goal, which I love because it's so simple. And the goal of positive psychology is to improve human well-being. Very well-being as defined, not the sort of airy-fairy, let's have a nice canteen and provide a crush for people, which is good, but it doesn't actually make a, a deep difference to, to, to people. Um, there is a, 
a much more specific definition of, of well-being. To build on your earlier point that employees that are happy and engaged will generally produce more profitable businesses. I interviewed Michael Puck, who works with Kronos, and uh, he heads up their human capital management team uh, around uh, employee engagement and well-being. And the research on this is definitive. Employees who are highly engaged will typically generate 430% higher profit per employee. 290% higher revenue per employee. Companies that have highly engaged employees suffer from 40% lower turnover rates, and they also have 20% higher production per employee. But for those hard-nosed capitalists out there who are listening, pay heed to this. They measured the return on investment of the shares of the S&P 500 from 2010 to 2016. And the average growth in that boom time was 14.33% or thereabouts, whereas the uh, companies that had highly engaged employees saw a return of 42.77%. So this is not something soft and fluffy. This is something that directly affects your performance, your bonus, and your balance sheet. So let's get stuck into that. First of all, Graham, why is it? that engaged, well, happy employees perform better? One of my soapboxes is about uh, employee engagement, because there is, in in most organizations, unlike the one you've just been talking about, there is the reasons why people measure engagement are confused and sometimes misguided. It's something we have to say that we measure because you're supposed to do it. The NPS score, the Net Promoter Score. There you go. Absolute twaddle. And and the the reason that I make engagement one of my core messages whenever I work with organizations, and it's one of the most common things that we're engaged to, to deal with, is because what matters is emotional connection. So it's emotional engagement that that matters. So if a person feels that their goals are going to be fulfilled by their helping the organization to achieve its goals. If they have deep affection, even love for the organization and the people that they work with within it, if they self-identify with the organization at a deep emotional level, what happens is that it releases in them a thing called discretionary effort that would probably well, I don't think everybody is familiar with it, but everybody should be familiar with the discretionary effort because it's the it's the thing that's behind those fabulous statistics that you've just been quoting, Marcus. Discretionary effort is the effort that a person chooses to put in over and above the level of effort they need to commit in order to survive in the organization. Now, my take on discretionary effort divides it into two components because I think if you and I for instance, and lots of the people who are listening to this podcast work in any organization. We're always going to go the extra mile. We're always, you know, we have personal reasons why it's important to us to contribute above and beyond. We're always going to do that. I call that character effort. You know, you can put me in an organization, as indeed I have been in, in, in my own career, in organizations where I don't love it. I don't believe in its values. I don't connect to it emotionally. But still, I work hard for my own personal reasons. But if you take somebody and put them in an organization where they have this deep emotional connection with the organization, 
that releases an even higher level of discretionary effort, which I call engagement effort. So the reason for, behind the statistics that you're talking about there is engagement effort. It's what people give when they feel that giving is a way of expressing a deep emotional connection with the organization. And that manifests in lots of ways because, because discretionary effort normally has zero direct cost associated with it. So in accounting terms, it's all marginal effort and it's marginal revenue, marginal um, uh, uh, income, which flows straight to the bottom line. And it operates at all, all levels through a PL. You know, a di discretionary effort improves productivity, okay, which is in the middle, in the middle bit here. Yeah? It reduces costs because one of the things it does is it boosts respect for corporate exhaust, uh, corporate resources. So, you know, I'm not going to squander uh, corporate assets. I'm not going to squander the time of my colleagues or indeed, uh, or indeed myself. So that, that cuts through to the bottom line. And also it makes people try harder, be more diligent, be more on it. And the business development side of things, on the sales side of things, so it hits the top line as well. And that, indeed, the, the numbers you quoted made exactly that point. Top line, middle line, bottom line, bottom line all improved. You know, one of the middle line things being, being staff turn, turnover, all improved by it. So that's the basic answer. And one of the things that is that the reason that engagement is a bit of a, it's something that everybody's seeking and very few people are, are, are finding. I mean, if you, if, you go on, if you go on Google and just spend 10 minutes finding out what the statistics are on how many people are actively engaged, depending on what survey you're looking at, it's across Western commerce and industry, you're going to come back with a figure of between 10 and 20%, okay? So that means that 80 or 90% of our employees are at least passively disengaged. And actually about a quarter of them are actively disengaged. So why the hell is that? Why is this such, such, such a holy grail? And I'll tell you why it is. It's because of selfish people who are put in charge of organizations who, who um, address their own needs and their own goals without fulfilling or addressing the needs and goals of the people that they expect to deliver their own personal goals for them. So where you have an organization where the chief executive is paid 30,000 times the average salary at the operator level in an organization, of course people are disengaged because that lack of authenticity disengages them. It's like, you know, I'm here because I, I need to pay my mortgage. I'm not here to help you become even richer. Um, and there are other reasons why people disengage. You know, one of the other reasons, not, I'm not suggesting that every organization with poor engagement scores is, uh, is run by selfish, thoughtless, greedy people. That's, that's not the case. There is, however, another thing that happens, which is that so many of us have grown up and been educated in our careers to see an autocratic leadership model to, we conceive of leadership as being a directive exercise, an exercise which is about telling rather than asking and, and listening. And where you have leaders in an organization, and this is, this is pandemic, we have leaders in an organization who are routinely triggering negative emotional responses in their people, either deliberately because they think it works or carelessly because they lack empathy. But where you make your people feel undervalued, less important than you, 
making them feel that they matter less, where you carelessly hurt them, upset them, offend them, humiliate them in the way that you deal with things. In that situation, people remove their their engagement. Why would I engage with you if you make me feel like shit? There's no way I'm going to do that. So there's a wonderful model that Stephen Cartman came up with, the drama triangle, that that describes on three points of a triangle every fucked up dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have. And you have the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And what you often find is that you have persecuting managers who bully and browbeat and punish, and as a result, their people will do the minimum necessary in order not to get it in the neck. Then you have rescuing managers. Now, rescuing managers I see as even more divisive because persecutors are obvious. Rescuing managers do their bit by their favorite byline is, I was only trying to help. But what they do is they help without boundaries or permission. And they can be micromanaging, they're mollycoddling, they're permissive, and they disempower you in a different way. What they do is they cause people to just drive towards uh, apathy, which is, well, what's the point? Graham's going to do it, you know, rework it anyway. So why don't I just do the minimum necessary? And they don't feel like they are developing because someone comes in and rescues. And you see this in uh, two really important landmark studies. The 12 questions that came out from Gallup and Project Oxygen from Google are both really fabulous indicators as to what great leadership and great management can do in order to ensure that employees are highly engaged. And if you do the research that Graham was suggesting on Google about disengagement, it should be a stark wake-up call for those of you who are wondering, well, why aren't we getting out of this rut that we're in? Uh, Why aren't we seeing any improvement? Well, chances are the first place to look is the mirror. So what advice do you give to people who are managing and leading businesses in order to ensure that they are not the problem? Well, I, I, I think that's... I think that goes right to the heart of everything. I am a simplifier. I like to free people from the shackles of whatever management models they've that they've been given on the last leadership training course they went to um, mm-hmm. by actually getting to the heart of what drives the things. Like the model that you just quoted, the studies that you quoted, they're absolutely invaluable and they're fantastic and they are very important. How do I use that in real time? When I've got 23 things to think about right now and people probably don't realise that you can't do that. You can't do that because we spend so much time trying to multitask. We think think that human beings should be able to multitask. We can only handle one thing at a time when we're focusing on it, that's... Multitasking is doing two things badly. There you go. There you go. That's very nice. I know that. By this time next week, that will be my idea, that phrase. There you go. That's fine. You just have to quote me once. I'm I'm sure I stole it from someone else. I don't know. But I love that. So the basic thing that people don't understand is that all of this, everything that you've described, all it comes down to is what emotional reaction are you creating in people? Okay. And if, if always in the front of your mind, you're thinking, how is this going to land? Okay. I'm about to task somebody. 
I'm about to invite them to join a new project. I'm about to give them feedback on their performance. How's it going to land? If I'm going to make them feel interested, valued, I'm probably going to get the impact that I want. If I'm going to make them feel criticized, put down, disappointed or angry, then what I need to realize is that at that point, my ability to influence them is completely compromised. So what I ask people to do is to always think about the emotional impact you're having. Even when you're holding somebody to account, think about how you're making the feel. It goes like this. If you're giving me feedback, Marcus, if I work for you and you're giving me feedback and you're pissing me off, or I'm thinking he doesn't understand it wasn't like that, or I'm thinking he's such an autocrat, or I'm thinking he's so bossy, or I'm thinking I know better than you, or I'm thinking I'm upset already, please don't tell me off anymore because I'm having difficulty dealing with this, or you know anything which is a, which is a negative emotional state, about anxiety, anger, feeling undervalued, anything like that. Now what I'm doing as I'm hearing this is I'm dealing with that. In my own head, I'm dealing with the negative emotion and I'm reacting to how you're being, okay? So I'm not actually receiving the message that you're trying to get to me, which I, I need to hear. Whereas if you are making me feel some positive emotion, and you know there are only nine of them, but look at Fredrickson's work, it's absolutely brilliant. If I'm experiencing love or caring, if that's too strong a word for you. A lot of people are made uncomfortable by the word love. But if, if, if I do feel cared for, if I feel respected, if, if I'm experiencing regret at what I've done, but I'm also getting a little bit of positive emotion, a bit of inspiration perhaps, because I can tell in the way you're being with me that you see in me the ability to do this much better next time. If I'm getting all of those sort of emotions going, then what happens is that I'm not thinking about the emotions, I'm thinking about what you're saying. So your ability to influence me and the way it is your duty to influence me as a leader is maximized. And, and there, are, there are really fundamental neurobiological reasons why that happens in a human being. We, are, we have evolved to be completely obsessed by negatives and to take positives for granted. So if you throw any negative emotion at me, I will obsess on that. If you throw if you throw positives about at, at me, I will enjoy the feeling, but I won't be thinking about it. I'll be thinking about the information content that you're handing in my direction. So that, that's my fundamental piece of advice. Now it's it's beautifully simple, but of course you then need to surround it with a whole lot of of, of, of method and technique in order for it actually to gain traction. There are multiple examples of this. And for those of you who follow the podcast, I urge you to listen to the interview that I did with a fascinating gentleman, Ian Dodds. And Ian was working as a manager at ICI back in the 1970s. And he was still living at home at the time. And he came home one day and he was listening to his parents grumble about how the managers didn't listen. And it gave him uh, another road to Damascus moment. And so he uh, went to work the following day and started to actually listen to the staff. Bear in mind, he was in the worst performing ICI factory in the world. And he started to implement this process of inclusiveness, genuinely listening to uh, the workforce. And the net result of that was that particular factory became the top performing factory in ICI globally within five years. 
He then started rolling this out throughout ICI and ended up having a massive positive impact on their performance worldwide. The interview I did with Michael Puck, exactly the same thing. He was responsible for helping large defense organization that was making explosives improve performance and reduce uh, accidents and injury and strikes and uh, labor problems and all sorts of stuff like that. And exactly the same thing there. David Weiss, who has just started as an enterprise leader at Outreach. Tom Casty, also a fabulous leader. Tom Shodorf. Every one of these leaders, uh, Chris Dudridge, uh, Colin Ferguson, Lisa Palmer, you know, every one of these people, they have this same philosophy, which is that you are inclusive, that make sure that people feel valued. And the same thing on the flip side, when it comes to looking after your customers, a, a really fascinating interview that I did with Amy Brown, who runs a company called Authentics. What they do is they track using AI technology, all the unfiltered spontaneous conversations that go on in the call centers of their clients. So this is in the US health market. And they record and analyze over a billion calls a year. And the customers tell you what they need, what they want and what they will buy, what they hate about working with you, where they get frustrated. And I firmly believe that a, an employee listening program is really in order as well. And particularly now under the lockdown, we have the opportunity to record and analyze these calls. Your staff can tell you precisely where you're going wrong, what needs to be done. They're at the sharp end. And if we do not listen to these people, we are missing monstrous amounts of opportunity to improve, to create engaged employees, and to drive our top and middle and bottom lines. If we don't do this, then shame on us. Absolutely shame on us. Your thoughts, Graham? You're resonating with me very strongly. There are a couple of things I wanted to come back on. The, the, the first thing is about how easy leaders find it to transition, if they need to, to this, you call it inclusive, I call it resonant leadership. We actually talk about leading with grace. Grace being a specific model that we, that, that we use, which is a simple way of achieving this. And Can you define what, what grace is? So grace is a combination of four factors. Empathy, which is three things. Seeing it from your point of view, knowing how you're feeling and giving a shit, okay? Resonance, which is impacting you with positive emotions only. Optimism, expecting positive outcomes. People don't like to follow pessimists, okay? And self-esteem, which is the the last point I was going to come on to. Self-esteem because... Doing what we're talking about, you and I, this inclusive or resonant leadership style, is all about focusing on the other person. One of the reasons a lot of intermediate leaders that I come across fail to do that is because they are obsessed with how they're doing. Um, am I going to get found out? What do people think of me? And that's, those behaviors are all driven by low self-esteem. So you need high self-esteem to be able to focus on the other to make sure that you're, that you're resonating, you're delivering, delivering with grace. Now, what I find is when you get leaders to transition from that, which we do, because self-esteem is, a, is an acquired behavior, it's a learned thing, which people can acquire, we teach them how to do that. Um, what we, we find is that people get very excited about the fact that 
They now get that leadership is about triggering positive emotions in people, and they go for that full on, and they love it. But just doing that is no good, <laughs> because what happens to people if they just do that is that they, they fail in arguably their number one responsibility, which is to give corrective and developmental feedback to people. And so the, the real trick is to, is to learn how to trigger positive emotions when you're holding somebody to account, when you're literally saying to them, another couple of months like this and you're out. You, know, you can't possibly put it like that. There's no way that would ever work. People do, unfortunately. But you need to find a way of, of, of explaining that you know they're capable of better. You want to help them deliver better. You need them to deliver better. The reason they're in the job is because you know they can deliver better and to inspire them to, to, towards that. People are less good at holding other people to account meticulously. And one of the reasons for that is that to adapt this leading with grace, this combination of resonance, and holding people to account takes genuine courage and genuine strength of character. And a lot of people find locating those things within themselves quite tough. It's a simple fact of life, which I put out as a challenge to people regularly, is that negativity takes no courage. Positivity requires courage. I agree. And what's really interesting, I've just come off a podcast interview with Mark Ridley who's developed a couple of um, psychometric profiles. We were going through how they came to the conclusions they did. And what they found uh, when they were looking at the leadership side of things was that there was a balance between uh, ambiguous and unambiguous empowerment. So the tendency was to let people come to their own conclusions, but you needed to be uh, directive. And you didn't have to worry about your own achievement. It was all really about other people's achievement and getting the best out of them. Making sure that you are communicating. And again, understanding there's a balance there between the unemotional fact-based communication and also inspiring others. And a balance between transactional and transformational influence. And as a result of that, you are able to give people clarity as to what was expected without yeah. being overly controlling, but also being absolutely clear about what was expected and not just managing by abdication. And then when they fail to meet your unclear or ambiguous expectations, then punishing them for your failure. That's, because I see that happen all the time. It's absolutely unforgivable. And there are when people ask me about our, our target market, as happens from time to time. I say our market selects itself. And this is a guess. 70% of companies remove themselves from our target market because they are not comfortable with our fundamental message because of exactly the things that you're talking about. And the fundamental message is if you're leading an organization and the performance is not what you want it to be, or if you're leading a team, and they're not delivering what you want them to deliver, it's probably because of you. And let's help you understand that and embrace that. And when you understand it and embrace it, you'll start to move forward. But if you fail to do so, you will continue to fail. And there are so many organizations, very sad, it breaks my heart, where the key leadership skill 
It's not a leadership skill. The key skill that people in the permafrost layers of management within the organization have acquired is how to cover their ass. And they spend, I remember I, I did one assignment when I was operating as a, a, in, um, in corporate finance when I was helping privatize parts of the home office. I ran an assignment there and, one, and I thought for a bit of fun what I was going to do was to analyze how much of their time the intermediate leadership levels spent on covering their ass. It's, a, it's an art form in this particular part of the civil service. And it was a minimum of 40% a day. You receive a memo and either as an email or actually still on paper, you are supposed to acknowledge that you've read it by signing it or by, yeah. There's a whole art in which ones you acknowledge and which ones you don't. So, okay. And Sir, Humphrey, Sir Humphrey is alive and well. Sir Humphrey is alive and well, still in control, flourishing and growing. So for those of you who don't understand that reference, look up Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister and you're in for a treat. But it's the, the machinations of the British uh, civil service dealing with government. Tell me this, Graham. What are the three questions people should ask but don't? Now, you, I, I knew this was coming, and I did some preparation. <laughs> <laughs> the number one, we, we've actually already touched on it. The, the, the number one is if I'm not getting the results that I want from other people, if I feel that they are letting me down or letting the organization down, the number one is, what have I not got right? You so know, let me make a point here. There is a fabulous maxim, which is in all of your dissatisfying relationships, the one constant is you. The first place you look is the mirror. Is it something you're doing or not doing or failing to do or not, uh, not doing? Comes back to self-esteem again, you see, because there's a wonderful thing you mentioned, Sir Humphrey. There's a wonderful thing where he's actually being caught out, and he and I, 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 it's a perfect speech. But he ends up taking responsibility by saying, "You know, I've investigated this, and everything that uh, every every conclusion that I've been led to draw means that it's entirely possible that the person responsible for this is a a person about whom I am accustomed to using the upright pronoun." Brilliant. I love it. Look that up. It is classic. It's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. So, so that's, that, that's one thing. What is my role in this failure? One of my teams is not delivering. What have I got wrong? My relationship with the shareholders isn't working. The shareholders are putting unreasonable demands on me for agreeing next year's budget. What have I got wrong? Why is that happening? There are a couple of points about this. And one of the points about this is that, is that human beings are very prone to worry about and invest their emotion on stuff that they cannot control. And that gives rise to a psychological condition called learned helplessness that we all Absolutely. suffer from, which is when you feel you can't affect your own outcomes. And so the way to get around this is to accept responsibility for everything that affects your life even when that is absolutely not fair. If you, are, if, if you get home tonight and your partner is in a bad moon, mood, own that bad mood and say, this is because of me, even though you know before well it isn't. Because if you own it, then you can take control of it, as in you can do something about it. And if you do something about it, 
you may fix the evening so it goes well. But if you become helpless about it and say, well, they're in a bad mood, there's nothing I can do, and it's entirely unreasonable, then you're just into a negative downward spiral of dysfunctionality. And that, that lesson runs across every, every human interaction. Just own it. What can I do? That's the, that's the one. The second point is people never ask themselves about change. We have a tacit assumption. We've inherited this from our joint education. We have an assumption that if we need to change something about ourselves, the thing that we need to do is to, is to exert force of will and strength of character, and that if we do that persistently, we will achieve the change that we're looking for. We may have even bought into the bullshit that if you force yourself into a new behavior for three weeks, it'll become a habit. That's not true. Um, some things we all know, the new behavior takes root immediately. Other things will defeat us for a lifetime. You know, one of the elephants that nobody ever seems to address until it's somebody like me makes them, or you, I imagine, is why is the world full of people who have failed to make the changes they dearly desire for years or decades or a lifetime? Why is that? Why, when I, during a program, get people to set personal and corporate goals for themselves, why is it that 95% of people have a body goal to get lighter, to build more muscle, to get fitter, to look different? Why do we all have a body goal that defeats us for most of our lifetimes? And the answer is that human change does not happen through willpower. It's not supposed to. It never will, never has. Unfortunately, there are a number of things ranged against us which persuade us that it's all about willpower. Because sometimes we try to change a behavior using force of will, and it works. Unfortunately, what has actually happened is something deep in our unconscious mind, and therefore, by definition, we are not conscious of it. But that's the process that delivers change. It's got various names. My favorite is cognitive restructuring. It's a process of conditioning that, that actually delivers change. The other reason that we buy into it is because we see, the, we see our heroes doing the extraordinary thing. A friend of mine, Guy Munnock, who used to run Zurich in the UK and then subsequently in Africa, who was a client, now a friend, Guy is, is a classic. He's the one that makes us all think that we should be tough like him. You know, he's walked to both poles, one of them twice, on the 60th anniversary of, of Tensing and Hillary summiting Everest. It happened to be Guy's 60th birthday, so he thought he'd better do that. So he went and summited Everest. You know, and I said, that's very dangerous, Guy. Why did you do that? He said, yes, it is dangerous. Actually, one in nine people who attempt it die in the attempt. I said, so what was your strategy for dealing with that? He said, oh, we were all over it. So what do you mean? He said, we put together a team of eight. (laughs) 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 And in February of this year, Guy is 67 years old. In February of this year, he set a new world record for rowing the Atlantic with three bodies. So we meet these people or we read about them or we know them and we think, well, I should be like that then. I said to him, I said to him, 
So you were three months, two and a half months in a boat rowing. What were the physical challenges? He said, well, the worst thing, funnily enough, was your hands. And I said, how was that? He said, well, everybody else was wearing gloves and they blistered up and they were in pain for virtually the entire journey. I knew that wouldn't work. So I didn't wear gloves. And yeah, I got some blisters and I had some pain for three weeks, but then I calloused up and I was fine. And it's that I love Guy dearly, yeah, but he's a freak, okay? He is an outlier who has this amazing reserve of willpower and strength. It's actually beyond that. He could no more live an ordinary life than I could climb Everest. So he's being true to his inner self. And uh, I, so I, interviewed, the- I interviewed a guy called Paul Mort, who is a coach, and uh, he made a really interesting point that procrastination, which a lot of us claim to suffer, actually is a choice. And it's whether you have the, uh, the desire, I almost said will, uh, but uh, whether you have the desire to change and whether you have the desire to act. And he made the point, you know, if you should be making your prospecting calls and instead you're watching videos of cats on YouTube, you want to watch videos of cats more than you want to make the prospecting calls. Um, you have a desire to do something. And if the, uh, the desire is strong enough and you have found that inner fire, that because motivation, and this is something I'd like to speak to you about, because um, I, I have a real bee in my bonnet about the charlatans and snake oil that's out there. Not that I'm in any way judgmental, but motivational speaking. <laughs> oh, yes, you are. <laughs> You cannot motivate anyone to do anything ever. Motivation is an internal fire. It's an internal force. And what you can do is you can coach, you can goad, you can inspire, you can bribe. But all of these things, Alfie Cohn wrote a really fascinating book, Punished by Rewards. And his premise is that by offering these extrinsic rewards, what you might do is change behavior briefly, but more often than not, people will either resist or they will backslide, or if someone invariably wins the competition, uh, you'll just think, sorry, there's no point, Mike's going to win it. So there is a strong argument here for looking at how we compensate. So again, I'd love to explore that uh, in terms of uh, compensation models. And if you know anyone who's really strong on creating effective compensation models, I'd love to talk to them as well. The thought that you have triggered in me is, I do not know a conversation about Lex, but, but is something that you said which is at the heart of goal theory. So one of the achievements of positive psychology has been understanding quite a lot more about achievement than we ever knew. There are many things that it's, that, that it's achieved. And another one is resilience, which right now is very current. But to come back to goal theory, there are broadly, you can think of it broadly as there being three sorts of goals. There's the outcome, the goal, right? That is. I want to run a marathon. So you know you've achieved that when you breast the tape, okay? There is the performance goal, which is how well you do it, which is I'm going to run in balance, make sure I've got my carb loading right, et cetera, okay? And there is the process goal, which is that, you know, in the year before, I I have a a process to go through that will uh, get me fit enough to do it. Now, people, when they're thinking about compensation, typically fall into, the, fall into the trap of focusing on outcome goals. 
Okay. And the trouble with an outcome goal is that as soon as you perceive that it's beyond your reach, it stops being something that motivates and starts being something that punishes you, that confronts you, that calls you a failure and makes you feel crap about yourself. So the, the, the key is to make sure that what you actually reward is performance and process as well as outcome. Because if, you are, if your performance is always to give of your best, then even if you are, you've known for three weeks of the month that there's no way you're going to get the outcome goal, your performance goal is still getting the best out of you. And so what happens is that people who focus on performance goals do better when they fall short. Whereas if you've just got an outcome goal, people just give up, they stop, they become learned helpless uh, about it. So that would, that's my three penneth on how to achieve what it is you want to achieve. That's very interesting. So if you're going to build a compensation scheme built around performance, process, and outcome, you need to look at, you need to have a plan. You need to identify the behaviors that will get you to the outcome. You need to be clear about what the objective is. And you need to measure the leading indicators that get you to that outcome. You need to temperature test along the way to see how well you're doing. And there needs to be a constant feedback loop. And the process needs to be flexible enough to adjust to changing circumstance. Yeah. So if you have revenue target for the year and the circumstances change, you need to be ready to change the intended outcome. So for example, COVID, it may well be the case that you need to adjust. However, uh, before you adjust the intended outcome, look at the two other parts, the performance and the process. So don't change the goal, change the behavior that gets you there and ask yourself whether the, the goal itself is what matters. Because what I see so many organizations focused on is revenue, not profit, and particularly in the tech space, land grab, market share, growth rate, instead of, uh, and also, uh, can we get funding? Instead of all of that crap, what you should be focused on is how do we create a long-lived business that generates satisfied lifelong customers and highly engaged employees? If you develop all four of those, then the chances are you are going to be highly profitable and you're going to smash any revenue targets. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think the evidence. I, th I think the evidence that that I'm familiar with would 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 support that. I, I think that the the subtle difference we might have about performance goals is that is that if if in the face of experience you need to adjust your outcome goals, very often there's no need to adjust your performance and, and, and process goals, because what you're saying is we wanted to achieve a hundred units in this period it looks like we're going to hit 90. But if we keep following the performance and the process that we know is right, we will get as close to the 100 as we're capable of doing. Whereas if we just focus on the 100 and we know that we're never going to do better than 90, that's going to produce a whole load of other psychological effects on us that will detract from our performance. Uh, one of which is that if you're feeling shit about yourself, in other words, if you are defaulting to a negative emotional state, there are a number of psychological attributes that are turned off. And those are, I have an acronym for that, which is CREAMS, 
and it is by no means a complete descriptor of what happens, but negative emotions destroy creativity, they damage resilience, they turn off emotional intelligence, they reduce analytical reasoning skills, they reduce motivation, and they damage self-esteem. Now, if you think about that as a set of attributes that you need to become a high performer, you can see that it's, it's, it's a pretty complete descriptor of what one needs in order to deliver, whether it's as an individual contributor or as a leader. So that's why the, the focus on performance in particular is more important than the focus on outcomes. But unfortunately, we are in a, in a society where shareholder satisfaction tends to trump everything else, and they are outcome goal-focused. Well, I, I have to say the whole piece around shareholder value, I think, is complete rot. And this is why I have a real bee in my bonnet about private equity and venture capital. I think what they do is they set businesses up uh, for failure. They create horrific cultures. And the failure rates of businesses that are focused on their quarterly reporting, public companies, same thing. There's a really good argument for either not going public or being ready to say, look, we're not going to hit the number that you think that we should hit. And by all means, punish us by affecting our share price. Nonetheless, what we're going to do is we're going to build a business that has longevity and sustainability, and we're going to build a business the right way. What we're not going to do is we're not going to go out there and prostitute ourselves in order to try and satisfy you in the short term. And this is why I think we're going to lose against the Chinese in the long term, you look at Chinese companies, they have 100-year plans, and we're operating on quarterly reporting. At the end of the Korean War, the Americans rented three uh, stories in the Hilton uh, for three months. The Chinese delegation rented a five-bedroom house for three years, uh, sorry, for five years. And they knew that they were going to win because all they had to do was play the long game because the Americans were going to try and rush and they were going to feel that pressure. Uh, the minute you create that pressure... Um, then you end up punishing yourself and you uh, end up uh, cutting your legs off. It's crazy. And we have to think longer term and we have to be more, far more strategic and less tactical. In defense of elements of the PE industry, the, the, the best among them understand all that very well. And the, the, the best among them, certainly organizations that I've worked with at, at clients, do actually form a more of a collaborative relationship it's true, though, that, that even in that model, they're usually interested in, they call it recycling, don't they? So I buy, buy into you when you're this size, I'll help you get to that size, then I'm out and my mate or somebody I don't know will come in and take over. But I know lots of people who have been able to achieve their goals through that model. It's actually a great model for enlisting the engagement of people throughout the, the, the company that we're talking about, provided people are, are happy to share. And wherever you get a leader that's not happy to share, you're going to have disengagement. And that is the, the pandemic that we're confronted with, coupled, coupled with the short-termism you're talking about. I totally agree on the fact that you've got people at the top of organizations who are not prepared to share means we have, you know, disengaged, short-term focused people. That's never going to build anything that's worth a damn. And, and the, 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 the challenge with it is, if you stand out and say, actually, I'm going to be an organization that's going to tell you the truth, and right now we're not going to do what we thought we were going to do for the, for the next couple of quarters, but then we'll be okay. 
what happens with that is because of the way that that share valuations are the black magic witchcraft of how do you value a company? You know, how do you decide what multiple of earnings it should be valued on? Because of that, that that's actually going to then make your share price fall. And that makes you vulnerable. And if you're a leader of that organization and you've just gone from here to here in share valuation, you've stopped being an acquirer. You're now a target. And being a target means end of your career. And that's what then motivates people is survival. So that's how leadership then gets bought into the short-termism of their institutional shareholders. It's a very, very flawed system. Absolutely. And uh, it's a very good argument to stay private. Um, Hell yes. um, Hell yes. um, Graham, we've come to the top of the hour, unfortunately, because I could talk to you for hours and I'd love to have you back. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think at the moment, the the challenges for my organization are, um, if that's what you mean, are all about correctly predicting a second pandemic and the impact that that's having on businesses. So we've had to, rather like yourself, I'm sure we've had to switch to everything being online. But but when we when COVID first came out in March, I was blogging and tub thumping about the fact that this represents a perfect storm of stress factors. Okay, people are worried about their health, the health of their loved ones. They're worried about money. They're worried about the longevity of their employer. And people are being deprived of social interaction at work and in and in their personal lives, which is a very deep need of human beings. It's a perfect stress factor. So what what happens? Sorry, perfect storm of stress factors. What happens in that situation is one's resilience starts getting eaten away. And resilience, and this is one of the big achievements of positive psychology, is what makes the difference between whether you emerge stronger after trauma or whether you are crushed by it. So people's ability to withstand this storm is being eaten away day by day by day by day. So what I was saying in March was, look out, here comes another epidemic And that is an epidemic of anxiety and depression as a spike in staff turnover, as people lose engagement and and withdraw, and as people's performance is destroyed by the stress that they are experiencing, and as their mental health gets, gets compromised. I stopped putting that message out because as a man who's basically about positivity in business and life. I didn't like the negativity of the message, but you know, you, one has to tell the truth. It's one of my core values. But you know, it's like two weeks ago that, that, uh, that the, the evidence started accumulating to prove that I was right. You see, one, one, of the, one of the things that does my head in, if I'm absolutely honest, is if you ask the man in the street or the woman in the street, what is the biggest pandemic in the world? They're all gonna say COVID, yeah? And it's just not true. COVID is utterly dwarfed by clinical depression as a long-term Western world pandemic. Absolutely. Well, 30% of the adult population in the UK suffers from some form of clinical depression. That's a shocking statistic. 19% at any one time so that their ability to work is compromised. Wow. Okay. Now, if we then look at the positive opportunity that COVID represents, I believe, is that managers really needed and need to 
focus on the pastoral side of their role, which was making sure that their people were functional and in good shape, that they were mentally uh, supported. And I, I think what you've seen through this crisis is that the best managers have really taken that to heart and have fabulously looked after their people. And I think the genesis of really genuinely good, powerful collaboration tools will come out of this. That's what I see will uh, drive a renaissance because you, you look at organizations like Cube, for example, I mentioned Eddie Obeng. He's been doing this for 19 years. So creating a, a virtual world where you focus on the work, you don't focus on how you look, you don't focus on the uh, medium, you draw people in and everybody gets a voice. And um, the, the environment that they've created is really fascinating. Being able to create um, change programs with a 96% success rate because they're taking people out of the cover-your-ass environment. They're taking people out of the place where they're worrying about how they look to others. They focus on the task at hand in a new medium that allows people to have a voice, to be heard, to make a contribution. Mm. And collectively, they come up with solutions that are significantly better than ones that are imposed from the top. You only have to look at the 80% failure rate of most change programs, the 88% failure rate of most CRM programs. All of these things are crazy. And I see uh, companies spending a fortune on sales enablement and marketing uh, automation technologies, and their numbers keep plummeting. Why? Because they're divorcing people from the human element. Sorry, go on. Another thing that this is another one of my soapboxes, if you'll forgive me, which is yes. that, which is whether you're talking about behavioral change in order to get your sales team to be more effective, for example, whether you're talking about behavioral change to get the organization to adopt a new culture because of the additional profitability it will deliver, then what happens is we have these wonderful information programs where we broadcast to people through training programs, through communication programs, through wonderful events where everybody gets to go and have a party for a day and learn the new way. We do all of that and nothing changes. Absolutely. And the reason that nothing changes is because everybody already knows. You know, you take a sales professional who's been doing this for 10 or 30 years. They know how to get the numbers, okay? They know what they need to do. What they fail on is whether they, you made an example before of whether they're actually, you know, watching pussycats on YouTube or they're making the calls that they need to make. What they fail on is delivering the actions that they know they should be delivering. And the reason for that is because they think that they can make it happen through willpower. So what then happens is you invest in, you know, invest three million quid in retaining one of the big sales training majors to actually train your sales force. And you get 40% of people buying in, and then you know for a few months you get a bit of improvement, and then you repeat it in the second year, and in the third year you start to get a bit cynical about it, and all of the sales force are disengaged and totally cynical about it because it's just this the current version of the bollocks that we're being asked to do. So you think, what do we do? I know we'll try another supplier. So you engage another supplier, and you go through the same cycle again because what you're doing all the time is telling people what they already know, and you're not telling them how to change their own behavior. And one of the the great benefits of that 
fabulous 96% statistic that you that you just talked about is that actually about being intelligent about how do you change people's behavior which is you provide an environment which conditions them into the the new behaviors that you want culture change is my favorite you know we we told you last year that these are our values we're going to tell you again these are our values and people sit there listening and say those are not our values those are what you want our values to be, Absolutely. but you don't do it, yeah? And I know that you don't do it because one of our values is inclusivity, and you've just, you've just told me to be inclusive in an autocratic way. <laughs> I'd go one step further. Training doesn't work. Utter no, waste of money. And, and the reason it doesn't work typically is because people are tactical and trying to teach technique instead of teaching values and beliefs and then using um, those as the foundation to apply technique. And if you haven't changed the culture and you aren't hiring people who fit within that culture, then chances are you're going to end up beating your head against the wall and throwing away a vast amount of money. I don't know how big the training industry is, but frankly, most of the money would be better spent on lottery tickets than preventing world hunger. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. That, I've got a blog out there. Uh, it's probably a couple of years ago now. It's like training doesn't work. And, and because training doesn't work. And everybody knows that it doesn't work. And, and, uh, uh, and yet we keep doing it. And the people who purchase it know it doesn't work because they've been through it earlier in their career. And they, knew, they know how much of what they've learned in a 20-year career of corporate training. They know how much of it they use in their day-to-day life. But that doesn't stop them going out and buying it again. It's, it's, uh, it, this points to one fundamental truth about human beings, that humans don't understand humans. And that's where we should be investing our time and our energy. There's another thing I wanted to say in, the, in the, the point you were just making before, which when you were talking about values and beliefs actually driving behavioral change, that actually is the heart of, I'm sure you know, but for those people who are listening who don't know, that's the heart of cognitive behavioral psychology, not CBT, CBP. And that is very much the approach to, to human change that, that we deal in, that we teach people to do, which is that... You're never going to change behavior until you actually change people's beliefs about themselves, actually their beliefs about their behavior. The way, the reason that I'm behaving like this with you right now is because in my self-concept, okay, this is who I am and this is how I conduct myself. So I'm always going to behave like this. If you want me to behave in a different way, the only way that that will ever happen so that it becomes my default is when my concept of myself, my so-called self-concept, changes. And that's achieved in part, by changing people's beliefs and values. David Sandler said, you will only ever perform to the level your self-concept will allow. And I think that was his true genius. Yeah, absolutely right. Graham, we've come to uh, the end. Uh, Very quickly, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, because it's having a profound influence on you? Well, that would be a good place to start. Thank you so much. We haven't seen Leaders and Positive Change by Graham Keane. And are you reading your own book? Yes, you should read that. I mean, (laughs) everything you need. Or read if you want to be persuaded by, by the evidence of the value of positivity in commerce, then read The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker, who is a Harvard. A C K E R. 
A-C-H-O-R. A-C-H-O-R. which is the best review of current psychological and positive psychological research into well-being and corporate performance that I can think of is one of my one of my favorite sources. If you're interested in improving human well-being, the first thing to do is to understand what it is and read any of Martin Seligman's books. Probably the best one to go for, best one to go for is Authentic Happiness by Martin Seligman or a subsequent one which is Flourish by Martin Seligman. Both of them will will again take you through what positive psychology means and how it benefits us. And because he's a man who thinks on a very large scale, he also in those books talks about the role of positive psychology in reshaping society. Is Seligman still alive? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I I watched him. uh, He's 77. Okay, you're going to like this. Um, I, I watched him a couple of weeks ago. He was giving an update on uh, on his response to COVID. And how badly can I swear on this channel? He didn't say what the hell he liked. So he didn't put it like this. So he said, but uh, okay, so one of the things I've realized that in terms of strengthening the immune system, then happy clappy stuff is really important. He normally denigrates happy clappy stuff because he's a scientist. And he said, but, you know, the evidence is clear that if you're smiling a lot, if you're experiencing a lot of joy, then, uh, you know, so the thing for you to do while you are uh, trying to deal with COVID and boost your immunity is, you know, walk the dog, watch your favorite TV, go out into the countryside and fuck as much as you can. (laughs) There you go. It's straight from Martin Seligman. So... Um, I did put it quite like that. <laughs> get your mojo on. So tell me, you've got a golden ticket. You're age 23. Oh, you can whisper in uh, the idiot Graham's ear, age 23. What would you? Uh, what advice would you give him? I think my advice to him would be that persistence is a strength but can lead you into the dogged pursuit of blind alleys and that... It's important to realize that Einstein defined stupidity in the way that he did for good reason. So don't stay in too long and don't get out too early. Absolutely right. Which probably refers back to the Martin Seligman quote. But let's move on from that. Um, (laughs) You're terrible. That was very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, how can people get hold of you? You can get hold of me through the website, which is newimpetus.com. You can get hold of me on any of the social media. Just search my name, Graham Keane. You can call me, 0771-667-616. I am always available. Excellent. That, that, that might speak to needing a stronger sales pipeline, but I'm not going to go down that road at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Graham Keane. Conversation. (laughs) Graham Keane, thank you so much. Thanks, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation enlightening and interesting, then please like, comment, and share. And if you'd like to get hold of me, you can get hold of me via Marcus Kauke at me.com or Marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last last.com so marcus laughs hyphen last.com and uh, in the meantime stay safe and happy selling bye-bye